Hello to all the Facebook friends out there. Wonderful to see you. Glad you're joining in today on this study as we continue our look at the um, at the breastplate of righteousness, looking at the armor of God in this study. Thank you for joining us and thank you for participating. I appreciate all of the encouragement that I get from sharing these lessons with you and uh, encouraging notes that I receive and just knowing that there are a few people out there in Facebook land and internet land and our website land that are watching that uh, uh, I hope and pray that I say something helpful and it's a great blessing for me and I hope it is for you as well. There are a lot of folks that uh, uh, tell me that they sign on. Some uh, actually put that on there like my friend Pat just did. Hello, hello. And others uh, will just tell me at church or some other time and say, hey, you know, I appreciate your messages. I never say anything. And that is a-okay. I don't mind that at all. I've uh, been uh, preaching for, I guess, officially for uh, almost 43 years now. It'll be 43 years in August. And um, uh, one of the things that I've come to appreciate and learn is that really, you know, if you're doing this so that you can uh, get some thrills out of what others uh, say or how they respond, that's, um, you know, that's only going to go so far. But uh, just like any, um, any other person that is a, um, uh, a genuine, sincere person that's trying to follow God's will, what, we, what we're all about doing, whatever our calling and profession and ministry, uh, we're doing that to please the Lord. And we're doing that because uh, we feel like we have a message, we feel like we have a contribution, and the Lord is calling us to be able to share that. And so I am very humbled to be able to share that with you today and to be able to share these messages on Tuesdays and Thursdays in this summer study uh, through the Facebook page and on our website, uh, westerwin.com, at our social media and resources link. You'll find a, a live streaming page that will uh, take you down a little bit, scrolling down to the video archives, and you can catch up if you ever get behind. Uh, but as we go through the summer, I know that the numbers are going to be pretty inconsistent, sometimes good, sometimes maybe less. That's okay. Again, doing this uh, so that we can get the word out, and anytime you want to try to uh, scroll down and catch up on some of those, if you're watching it on my Facebook page, or scroll down and click on the different ones that you find on our website, on our live stream page, you're welcome to do that. Um, in, in Ephesians 6 verse 14, as Paul is beginning this series, this study of the armor of God, remember he reminds us to take on the full armor of God, the panoply of God, and so that we can use that spiritual armor in the spiritual battle, and in spite of everything that Satan throws at us, we'll still be able to stand. It's a great passage in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, and as we said, it began with the belt of truth uh, that is uh, fastened around our waist and now it is the breastplate of righteousness that is in place and that's the we have to have that breastplate of righteousness and it has to be in place it has to be covering up those things that are vital that keep us alive and um, that is righteousness but what kind of righteousness that's the question that's the question i want us to be thinking about today and you know the answer already it's the title of this of this study, uh, righteous by the blood of the Lamb. But sometimes we have a little bit of difficulty really accept, expecting, accepting that and understanding that it's enough, that the blood of Christ actually is enough. Um, and so I want us to begin and end in 1 John chapter 2, 
uh, not to confuse this with our Sunday afternoon Facebook study, which is in 1 John. And this uh, Sunday, actually, at 4 p.m., if you want to catch it live on my Facebook page or later, uh, posted on the Facebook pages and on our website, uh, this, this Sunday we'll be actually looking at this very passage. Uh, this passage from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, and then also uh, in the beginning of chapter 2. And that's where we'll start, in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Uh, remember earlier he had, or not earlier, earlier we had talked about it in that Sunday First John study, but in First John 5 verse 13 he says, I'm writing this to you so that you will know that you are saved. And I, th I think we can know that. I, I think it's impossible for us to know that if we're trusting in our own righteousness as a breastplate, that won't, that won't be enough. But if we're trusting in the righteousness of God, then we can have that assurance of salvation. And so John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, as he describes himself a few times in the Gospel of John, he says, look, I'll tell you why I'm writing this in 1 John 2 verse 1. I write this to you so that you will not sin. And if that was the end of it, we would think, oh boy, I'm not sure I can do that. But the sentence goes on. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Reminiscent of what he said in John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever would believe in him would not die, but would have eternal life. John says the same thing here. He says, Jesus has been sent because I don't want you to sin. And I'm writing as, as the elder, as uh, the apostle whom Jesus loved, as a person that his readers would respect a great deal, writing uh, later in his life. John says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you not to sin. I'm writing so that you won't sin. And as we've talked about in, in our Sunday study, 1 John has that stream to people encouraging them not to sin. But it also has the stream that comes next, and that is the stream that says, you know, you, you can have assurance through Jesus Christ of your forgiveness and your salvation. And so he says, if anybody does sin, haha, ha, like somebody is not going to sin, John says, look, we need to be knocking ourselves out, trying to be faithful and obedient to God out of gratitude uh, for the forgiveness that we have. And that's what he says, but he says he realizes also that people will fall. And so he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, uh, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation. Uh, that big $2, $1.98 word that says, uh, it, it just means that Jesus um, is pronouncing us righteous because of his righteousness. The term expiation is a little bit different. It expiates the sin out of our lives. It cleanses us from our sin, as he says, we'll see in just a moment in 1 John 1, 7. But it also, it also makes us righteous. It gives us the righteousness of God. And, um, and that's what John says here. That's how he begins this. And so this breastplate of righteousness, that righteousness is a gift from God. It's the the apostle and how he called himself the worst or chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1. 
and how he described his own past in Philippians 3. Very faithful Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a persecutor of the church. He was all in, uh, but he was all in on the wrong cause and on the wrong side. And so when he realized that, he repented and he gave his life to Christ. And now he has that righteousness that comes from God. Not the righteousness that he, Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, would have been able to secure. Because that was imperfect. Even the great Apostle Paul, before his conversion, as a faithful Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, would not have been faithful enough. But with the righteousness that comes from God, it is enough. It is enough. And that's what uh, Paul uh, claims and says in... Um, Romans 3 and everywhere else I just mentioned, the apostle whom Jesus loved, the apostle John, recognized that our righteousness comes from the Lord only from the Lord. And so John in 1 John 1, and as I said, I'm going to read this, but we won't get too deep into it. We'll do that, save that for Sunday afternoon, hint, hint, commercial, commercial. Um, John acknowledges that we are sinners, and if anyone says they're not, then they're lying. But he also acknowledges that we are forgiven sinners. First John 1 verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, first John 1 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So back and forth it goes. If you say that you haven't sinned, then you're lying. You're lying to yourself, you're lying to everybody around you, and you're lying to God. And everybody but you, and I think even you, would know that, that it's not true. But the other side of that, the in-between verses, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all of our sin. Well, that's it, Bill. I, I don't think I can walk in the light perfectly. Well, there's nothing that John is trying to hide or put past us on that. But there is also the acknowledgement that Jesus died for our sins. And we saw that in the first two verses we read in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, and then, of course, in 1 John 1, verse 7, and 1 John 1, verse 9. Um, and there's another writer in the New Testament that establishes this in a very methodical, structured way. Uh, and, and we don't know exactly who he is. He's the writer of the book of Hebrews. And um, uh, no one knows exactly. I think it was even the uh, uh, very ancient, uh, early uh, historian and uh, man of faith, Augustine, who said, God only knows certainly who wrote Hebrews. <laughs> um, but that part doesn't matter because whoever it was, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. 
And so let's take a look at a few of the passages from the book of Hebrews because it brings it out better than anywhere else that our salvation strictly comes because of the sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews, as the name indicates, is written to Hebrew Christians, to Jewish Christians, Jews who had converted to Christ. And now, because their lives had been so tough and so persecuted, they were thinking of cashing it in and going back to Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews, a Hebrew himself apparently, very methodically takes them through that and says, Jesus is better than anything under the old law. The covenant is better. The new covenant is better. The high priest is better. It's Jesus himself. The promises are better. Everything is better uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ. But he carries that through in very uh, priestly uh, Old Testament uh worship sacrificial language and so these are some of the things that he says starting in hebrews 1 verse 1 in the past god spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe the son hebrews 1 verse 3 is the radiance of god's glory and the exact representation or image of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And then notice this last sentence in verse 3. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Just like the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice, uh, the blood of the bull, and would sprinkle it on the altar on the holy in the Holy of Holies, um, Jesus did the same thing in the ultimate Holy of Holies, heaven itself, the very throne room of God. And the image here is of Jesus ascending into heaven, going straight to the throne room of God and taking his own blood and uh, sprinkling it there. And after doing so, sitting down at the right hand of the Father. Uh, that, that's what Jesus did. And he didn't go up there and take anything that you have done. What he did, and the writer of Hebrews establishes this from the very start of the book. What he did is he took his own blood. He took his own sacrifice with him. And he gave that to the Father. And he said, Father, I want you to use this when you look at Bill's life. And when he looks at your life, uh, it's a great, great statement. Jesus carried his own blood to the ultimate holy of holies, heaven itself, for you and for me. Well, we keep going in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, that's us. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, just like John said, in 1 John 2 and Paul said in Romans 3. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being who are being uh, facing death and facing temptation. He's able to help us. Why? Because he became fully human. He became like us. Well, is that enough? Well, no. But what he did was he offered up himself. He became the faithful high priest. And later on, as you know, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews, the writer compares the high priests of old, uh, which had to be forever changed because they were men and they would die, 
to the ultimate high priest, the great high priest, Jesus himself, uh, who now, as we're going to read, has died once for all. It's not the blood of an animal, a bull or a goat or a calf, but it's the blood of Jesus himself. Uh, and that is enough. Um, and so we keep reading now in chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In chapter 2, he says, Jesus became like us. He became fully human and even endured death for us. And now in chapter 4, he says, this high priest is enough. Uh, he is enough. He's able to empathize with us in our weaknesses because not only did he become fully human, he was tempted as a human. He experienced temptation just like we do, yet he never faltered. He never sinned. And that's why he's so much greater and so much better than any other sacrifice. So much better than any other high priest. So much better than we ourselves. Because he never sinned. And the blood that he brought up to heaven with him when he went was the blood of the righteous Lamb of God, the Son of God himself. Uh, Jesus was tempted like we are, and so he understands when we're tempted. And he understands when we fall. He doesn't justify it. There's nothing that justifies it. And that's why Jesus came and had to die. He doesn't give us permission to sin. We remember the words of Romans 6 uh, that says, So what should we say about this great salvation? Should we continue on sinning so that grace might increase, make the blood of Jesus worth it? Um, and And... Paul answers his own rhetorical question and says, absolutely not. Why? Because that's not who we are. We died to sin. We were buried with Christ through baptism into death. We've been raised to live a new life. That's not how we live. We don't live for sin. We don't live to satisfy our selfish desires. Granted, sometimes we do, and that's called sin. And when we do, then we seek God's mercy. And God accepts that because Jesus died for us. Uh, and he gives us that opportunity to live that new life. Uh, nowhere is this spoken of in clearer fashion than in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. Uh, powerful, powerful chapters that speak about how Jesus, this great high priest, gave himself for us. Kind of tempted to read all of those two chapters, but I'll let you do that on your own. But we'll start in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ, Hebrews 9 and 11, came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, 
cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. It's the less than, greater than argument, the Calvahomer argument that's so uh, common in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere. But that argument says, well, if this lesser thing is true, then the greater thing is even more true. And that's what he does about the sacrifices. He looks to the sacrifices of the Old Testament and he says, look, they did their job. They did their job. They allowed someone to be ceremonially, outwardly clean. So if they did their job then, then how much more will the blood of Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest, the, the perfect Lamb of God, sinless, one who is tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin, how much more will that blood be effective Uh, and moves us from guilt to innocence. Throughout these verse, these chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, the writer of Hebrews uses that great passage in Jeremiah 31, at, towards the end of the chapter, verses 31 through 34, as a text, as a sermon text, actually. And chapter 10 continues that on. And we read this, beginning in verse 11. Day after day, every priest, speaking of the Old Testament priests, stands and performs his religious duties again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins they could allow them to be ceremonially outwardly clean but if jesus hadn't died on the cross all those sacrifices would have not meant anything as far as their eternal salvation and their cleansing from sin they couldn't verse 12 but when this priest jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant, quoting Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Oh, what a great, great blessing. Taking those words of Jeremiah written in the 6th century B.C., uh, uh, five or 600 years before Jesus was even born, looking ahead to this time when this new covenant would be in place and and the laws of God would be written on our hearts and and their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more it's only through the blood of Christ that God is a God of justice and so there had to be a price paid in 2nd Corinthians 5 verse 21 my favorite passage these days brings exactly that out along with Romans 3. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 just so beautifully and simply says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just like in Isaiah 53, with, with the beatings and the stripes and the punishment that was put upon him, that's what brings us our healing. And we're saddened and we're sorrowful and we're ashamed that it took that but the good news of the gospel is Jesus was willing to pay the price. And so because of that, our sins and lawless acts, God says, I will remember no more. 
And then the writer of Hebrews makes this great statement in Hebrews 10, verse 18, and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. There's no longer needed a sacrifice for sin. Why? Because Jesus died once for all, and that was enough. It was effective for those who respond to God by faith, not looking to our good works or good deeds, but we respond by faith. And, and we hear of that sacrifice of who uh, actually seek him and serve him. That we believe God keeps his promises. And that's what the next great chapter in Hebrews, that honor roll of faith, begins with. That's, that's what faith is. It's trusting and believing in things that we can't see, haven't experienced, but knowing that God exists and knowing that he keeps his promises. When we approach God that way and we turn away from our sinfulness, that's called repentance. It doesn't mean that we never sin again. It, it just means that we're on a different path. We confess that faith so that others will know. And then, as Paul said in Romans 6, we are buried with Christ through baptism into death so that we may be raised to live a new life. Uh, what a great, great statement. And, and that life is exactly that. Uh, other places tell us Corinthians 5 and elsewhere. And here we know that it's true. Why? Because Jesus made it possible for us to have the breastplate of righteousness. Not our righteousness but the righteousness of God. And now we can have that breastplate of righteousness firmly in place. As we think about that righteousness of God and as we think about that breastplate of righteousness, I want to close with taking us back to an old classic hymn, Rock of Ages. And maybe you've thought about the words many times. Maybe you've never thought about them. But these words so uh, clearly identify and illustrate in a very poetic way the beauty and the fullness of the sacrifice of Christ. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Nothing I can do. Could my zeal no respite? No. If I was the most excited and passionate Christian on the face of the earth, could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? The, the tears wouldn't stop. The crying wouldn't stop. That's how badly I felt. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. It's not enough. Thou must save, and thou alone. Christ is enough. So nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross. I cling, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Amen.